that I know people that were my, there's like three or four here, that's it. Everybody else, it's either in jail or dead. Hi, I'm Wayne Jacobson, and this is my friend, Lewis. The story of one of the most engaging men I've ever met and of the friendship that developed between us. It has transformed both of our lives and left us in grateful awe at the adventure of life on this little planet. Having crossed the border in December 1994, Lewis is now confronted with some very difficult choices. His family is here. His fiance is in Mexico. But to return there offers him no future whatsoever. If I go back to Mexico, I had only two choices, okay? I either been in the army and stay there or being part of the uh, drug cartel. You have no choices. You cannot stay on the fence. It was really dangerous. You have to choose a faction in, or in order to be protected. So the only choices you had there was to join the cartels, being a police officer or being in the army. If you stay on the fence, it was really dangerous. You can get killed. You need a place to be protected. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to be here in the U.S. And that's how I overstayed my visa after fighting. And I kept fighting here until I, I fought Golden Gloves. I went as far as the national champions on the amateurs. And that really opened up my eyes to this nation, how everybody here, it's amazing how everybody has a different, so much liberty. Of course, you have right, you know, responsibilities, right? You respect the law, you pay your taxes. But in, right here, I mean, you, I, can, I could go anywhere without being asked, say anything. And that's the reason I stayed here. If I got back to Mexico, I had to make a choice to either cho choose between drug cartels, police, or the army. What if you didn't? What if you just wanted to be a regular worker in Mexico? I have to pay for protection, most likely from drug cartels, protection from themselves. And you have to pay also the floor, they call it floor. Like if you buy or sell something, you have to pay to buy and sell. And if you travel, you have to pay for protection from here to there, point A to point B. And you cannot make a living over there. And, and if you didn't do that? You'll get killed. Most likely, a lot of people who get really stubborn, if they feel that they can get a lot of money from you, they, they may kidnap or abduct one of your family members, force you that way to pay. And if you don't, well, they, they, they kill them. They just kill them. Things just got, got worse ever since. Right now, I know people that were my age, my age group. Most of them are, are there's like three or four here. That's it. Everybody else, it's either in jail or dead. And so you were here a few more years and then you wanted to marry Maria. When did you ask her to marry you? It was over the phone because uh, I was here and she was in Mexico. And then I asked her and of course she said, yes, I know it was very uncommon, but her sister was here. She was already living here. And I didn't have their number. So she said, oh, I have uh, the number on a community phone that you have to, you call, then you pay for them to send a message. Then you, you set up a time and date. Can she come and talk to me at this time and day? I asked her to marry me on August 27, uh, 1996. And you had been in the U.S. So since that December 94 crossing, have you? Yes. I never went back there since. So had you guys stayed in touch through all that time? Yeah, letters and uh, over the phone. How soon till you got married? So after I, I asked her to marry me on, a, on the next Tuesday, I was there in Mexico. We get married then. 
15 days later, we were here in the U.S. Bringing in my wife in. The hardest part is having somebody else with you. And now it's my wife. When I was coming by myself, you know, in my mind, I can fend for myself and, and I can, you know, do whatever I need to to survive. But now I have to protect my wife, her, you know, physically also from protecting her from seeing things that she shouldn't see or experience things she shouldn't. That's really stressful. Also, the fact that you stay, when, when you stay that that person is related to you, that makes you a target also. Because people are going to, in order to get to her, they have to get through you. That happens uh, very often. That happens to a father and, and daughter or brother, siblings or husbands. It's kind of like the story of uh, Abraham and Sarah. He had ended up saying that uh, he told her to say that they were uh, siblings or brothers, fears that he was going to get killed. It's, it's the same fear, the same thing. So you have, you have to keep watching him all the time. You have to keep protecting him all the time. And, and it's, it's extremely stressful and, and very, really, really hard. Did you cross the same place? With her, because I didn't want her to suffer. We came in a different way. I didn't want her to go through the wall. So uh, we came through, through a place called uh, Playas, which is by, by the beach. You know, I, I figured that the, you know, the soothing sound of the waves or something will calm her down a little bit or something. But no, no, it didn't work. We decided to raise our family here in the U.S. I want to give my children a better opportunity than I had. And she totally agreed with that. It was very hard for her to leave her family and for her parents. But so, yeah, it's the best for all of us. So we came here and see the, the way of life here, how free people is, and how you can go to the store and nobody, nobody bothers you, and how you can go places. You know, you have freedom of, of going anywhere and, and not be questioned by, by anybody or paying people to leave you alone. Because in Mexico at the time, and now it's worse, it's totally different. You have to pay the drug cartels to leave you alone. What was it like to be back in the U.S. with your young wife, even though it was illegal for you to be here? Let's just say the legality part here in California, you know, for the most part, it was she was really always really very scared. You know, they were going to come and get her. But me being here longer, I reassure her that hopefully it wasn't the case. But what you do is you just go into the shadows, like having a P.O. box, for example, instead of having a mailing address. When, when you do your taxes, you do have any pseudonames or anything, you do your actual taxes, you have something called ITIN number that immigration is supposed to know about it. And uh, you try to have, uh, you know, not, not to have uh, bank accounts, stuff like that. Yeah, then you had some other jobs too, yeah? Now, when I came back, I continued boxing. The funny thing that every time I was going to turn professional, I tried to turn professional three times. First of all, I, I hurt my shoulder, and then I had a surgery on my right shoulder. Then running, I hurt one of my knees, and then I had a surgery there. I had an accident at, at work, and then I broke both of my knees because I was working while I was training also. Never became professional. I also uh, worked for a country club. I was in charge of cutting the tees, and so you know, know what that is. And then I worked my way up to cutting the greens. After that, I worked my way up to cutting the furways. And that's where I stopped there. I also worked at a, a car dealership. I worked there for 14 years. I started as a porter washing cars. Then I worked my way up to a part-time driving the parts truck, taking parts to customers. Then after that, I worked my way up to a full-time driver. 
Then uh, I started working on the front desk, helping out, you know, taking care of customers, selling the parts, stuff like that. Then I was, I, I was a full-time parts guy. And then I worked my way up to become parts manager to, for that car dealership. And then after that, at that car dealership, they had a sister store here in Oxnard. So I became a parts manager for both stores. And that's as high as I went on that company because I had, I had the accident. And while I had the accident, they, on that gap of time uh, that I couldn't work, they sold the company to another, to another company. Uh, they came in and then I, I actually went back to work for the new company that came in, but it was totally different. I went back to the other company, to the previous company that they, they rehired me in another, another place and, and with another position. But then I ended up having another surgery and out of work for another year. So, and by then they move in a different direction. They needed me. And then after that, we started, uh, my wife and I, our, our own business. And that's what we've been doing ever since. And when did you have your girls during this time you were parts manager? Jenny was born back in uh, 1997. Uh, that time I was working for, the car, for a car dealership. And then in 2002, which I was working for the car dealership, Andrea was born as well. They went to school here locally, and we've been living on the same, uh, same place ever since. In 2008, Sarah and I moved to our current home to help a good friend make a movie out of a book we had helped to write. In late 2006, Paul Young sent me a little story he had written for his children as a Christmas gift. It was called The Shack. He had no intentions of publishing it, and in its current condition, that would have been difficult to do. I encouraged him to make the story more dramatic, to shape it into a book of healing for the main character who had suffered great tragedy in his life. After trying for a few months, he told me he just didn't have any passion to rewrite it and asked me if I would. So Brad Cummings, a friend of mine, and I spent 16 months rewriting the book into a dramatic tale of redemption. When we went to publish it, we were turned down by Christian publishers because the book was too edgy. They encouraged us to take it to their secular publishing imprints, but we were turned down there because it was too much about Jesus. So we either had to throw out 16 months of work or publish it ourselves. In April 2007, The Shack came into the world. In 13 months, we had sold over a million copies out of Brad's garage on $250 of marketing. We were at the top of the New York Times publishing list and had a viral hit on our hands. My life was crazy. With lots of travel and my wife was working full-time as a high school counselor, we needed help cleaning our home, and a friend recommended we give a couple named Louis and Maria a chance. They came highly trusted and we're in need of the work. So, Louis, do you remember the day we met? Yes, I do. You were in my home. Someone recommended that you come here, and uh, Sarah and I were both uh, incredibly busy and needed someone to clean our house, and you and the, the business you started was a house cleaning business. And so a friend had recommended that you guys come over and give us a, a bid for the house because we needed someone to clean it for us. And you and Maria came over. Remember that? Yes, I do. What were you thinking coming in? I mean, you've done this before. You've been in many homes, but we didn't know each other at all, right? It wasn't actually what I expected. I remember that when I, we, my wife and I came in on that day, we met Sarah and then we met you. 
And then after talking a little bit more, I learned that you were a pastor. Not at the time, but you used to be a pastor. As I recall, you came into my office and you looked at my bookshelves and you said, why do you have so many copies of The Shack? Oh, that's right. Yes, I did. Yeah. You already knew about this book, right? I did. And you asked, why do you have so many copies? And they aren't all in English. I got lots of copies in languages from all over the world. And so you're like, why do you have all this? I said, well, I'd help work on the book. I'd help write it. I'd help publish it. And you said, are, and I remember you looked at me and said, are you a man of God? You said it like that, like really kind of scary. <laughs> it sounded kind of like, are you a man of God? And I said, well, I probably not the way you mean that, but yeah, I, fo I follow Jesus. That's my life. And uh, as soon as I said that, if you were a man of God, I said, I will clean your house for free. And I clearly remember when you said, if, if you don't charge me, I cannot hire you. And when I saw so many books in there and so many copies, I thought you were just an, an avid reader. And, and as far as the shack, that you noticed that you had a lot of, like, like he loves me and a lot, a lot of copies in different languages. So I thought I said, he really liked this book. Because, I mean, it didn't make any sense for you to have it in Spanish if you don't understand it or other languages. I really thought that you uh, really loved this book. What I put two, uh, two, two and two together, I'm like, this man must be a man of God. You know, so I have to really, really treat him differently because, you know, otherwise, you know, God is going to visit me and say, hey, you know what? Why didn't you treat him, you know, different? In my mind, I was like, you know, I should clean this man's house for free. Yeah, I've met people like this on my journey. Not many. And I certainly didn't encourage it when I pastored. I pastored for 20 years in the Central Valley of California. But there's a whole idea of the, of the man of God must be served. And so you wash his car for free. I mean, I, I know pastors who encourage that. I know people who do that. And when you said that, one of the first things I thought I know about you is, wow, this guy's pretty caught up in some legalistic stuff. Because that's, in, in my world, that's pretty dark. When you're going to say, oh my gosh, you're a man, you, you have nothing. You and your wife are living on as little as you, as you have. I'm asking you to clean my home, which is a good-sized home. So, I, I, And I'm saying, you're going to clean my house for free? Not a chance in the world. And I remember said, if you won't give me a fair price to clean my home, I'm not going to have you clean it because I want to pay you what it's worth. And you gave me a price. And that's where this whole thing started. We hired you, to, you and your wife to be in our home every other week and do some cleaning for us. And we didn't know you at all. Oh, and I remember asking you if you had a green card, because at that time, I'm clearly a law and order Republican. That's my background. And I, man, I, I'm not going to hire anybody who's not here legally because I'm not going to support that industry, whatever. And so I asked you if you had a green card. Yeah. And I remember that my reaction was like, yes, I do. And I produced one. You did. You showed me a green card. But in uh, on the back of my mind, I was, I was, I was like, oh, no. You know what people say may be true. I thought that is it, is he racist? But there's nothing racist about it. You know, it's just the law. Going back to a legalistic point of view, you're right. I was always taught that the men of God has to be served, and you have to be given the very best, and and you have to serve them always. As I started meeting you and Sarah, the way you talk and the way you act, there was nothing religious about it. Even the, uh, one of the gardeners that used to work here, he, he asked me, he's, well, I think they're this religion, he says. And then I said, uh, no, they're not. And, and then he says, what do you know? How do you know? I said, because I said, they're, they're Christian. And then he says, how do you know? I said, well, the way they, they act and talk. And he says, but they never talk about it. I said, they don't have to look at, they treat us, they treat us differently. So he, he was like, 
yeah, you're right. Because I, when I go here, I'm treated like this. So then I started questioning in my mind more the way I was living my life and how I was, I was educating my, my family, you know, my daughters and, and how my wife and I were imposing, imposing this way of seeing things that we, you have to go to church every Sunday, every Friday and every Tuesday, three times a week. Because it, it goes, it started when I was a kid going back. I was sent to, they used to send me to church uh, every Sunday. If not, God will punish me. So I would not make, not just make it into heaven, but God will punish me. And then I, somehow I allowed that to start crippling into my mind and, and raising my girls like that. I remember one time, Jenny, she was like 11 years old. And she says, why do we have to go to church so many times? And then I said, well, because, you know, God demands it, I said. And then she asked me one more time, why? And then I remember saying, because I said so. I was being so legalistic and so, I want to tell you, so controlling that I said, you know what? In my mind, I was like, I'm doing you a favor. You know, by doing this, you're going to please God. By doing this, you, God is going gonna, gonna to remember all of these deeds that you do. And uh, he will, he will in, in turn, he, he will turn them into blessings. That's why we, we go three times a week. We go to the prayer meeting at 4 a.m. We go to the prayer meeting every, uh, once a week, and we don't miss it because if we miss it, oh, you know, I couldn't live with myself. During the day, I was like, uh, Lord, please forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. As we started talking and everything, th- there was one, one thing that, that really struck me, and it was on the, on, on the book, He Loves Me, that it says, like, the church couldn't, uh, what if, what if, right? What if? The church, it's not this beautiful manicured, you know, garden and not this wilderness of beauty, you know, like looks like chaos, but it's so beautiful. You know, it looks, you have birds, you have uh, beautiful plants and then you have flowers. Right? And, and I was like, you know, this man is up to something. <laughs> he is up to something. The first thing I remember changing in my life was that one time Jenny was, she was like 15 the time and she says, uh, Dad, I have a lot of homework and, and I have a lot of work to do. And I saw her so pressured and we were actually in the car driving to church. So all of a sudden I hit me, something hit me, but it was this conviction on my heart that, that, that to turn around the car and, and, and thinking really, I, I really asking God and said, Lord, I don't, your will is not for my daughter to go to church and being, and being this stressed out, working up to three or four in the morning because she has to catch up only to appease me, right? Only to, to, to say, okay, I did what my father did. Because he wasn't really God. He, she was appeasing God. God was, God was already uh, in love with, you know, loving us. And we don't have to earn his love. But I thought that we have to. So I turned, I turned the car back, went back home. And uh, she was crying when we were going. And then I turned the car back. She kept crying, but she kept crying. Now she, she was crying because she felt understood. And then I, I have to, I, it switched from a conversation with my daughter now into conversation with my wife. I have to explain to her as to why I did what I did. Yeah. When you talk about being controlling with your kids too, isn't that the same thing that was happening to you? I mean, your religious leaders were controlling you. They're doing this for your own good. So then of course you learn to do that for your children because that's what, that's what's being modeled for you. And Sarah and I grew up in a lot, not, not as legalistic as what you've come from. Uh, It wasn't, you know, we didn't serve pastors for free and we didn't, we didn't do that kind of thing, but we had rules to follow and you earned points for, you know, by doing what you're supposed to be doing, trying to make God happy with your life. 
But before we met you in 1994, when you're coming across the border, December of 1994, right? Oh, yes. In December of 1994, my co-pastor that I've been working with 15 years, he announces my resignation one Sunday morning when I'm teaching a church out of town. So you're going through you know, a breakout from Mexico to get back to the U.S., and I'm going from a breakout from the religious training I had been in to finding myself outside of it because of the lies and betrayal of a very close friend. Now, I could have fought my way back in. I could have, I had the, I had the power to go, you know what, we're going to split this church and I'm not, these guys are lying to you. And I could have gone back and fought it, but I felt like the Holy Spirit put this thing in my heart. He said, I have more to teach you if you walk away than if you stay. And finally, Sarah and I just didn't go back. Now it looks like what they said was true. Wayne has left us. Wayne's resigned and gone away. And they had no resignation letter. I'd never resign. And now it looked like I had, and, and that was the same month that you're coming into the U.S. Oh, wow. And that started two incredibly dark years for Sarah and I. We talk about the next two years being incredibly painful. I was being gossiped about. People believed things about me that weren't true. I had served my reputation my whole life, and I felt wounded by the fact that people thought maybe I'd had an affair, maybe I'd taken money, or that rumors were spread that way. So the leadership could make a distance between me and that group. In those two years, though, God began to take me on a very different journey about mm. learning how loved I was, what culminated in a book I wrote in 2000 called He Loves Me, Learning to Live in the Father's Affection. And then mm. 2005, when Paul Young asked me would I rewrite his book for him, The Shack. To me, He Loves Me is the nonfiction book, and The Shack is the illustration of that. It's, the, it's how it is that God loves us, even at our most broken and most pained. And how it is that we get to enter that life together. So I think it's interesting when I, when I compare dates with you, we're both going through a major transitional thing. You being introduced to God's love for the first time, me starting a different journey that took me into that love in a very different way than I'd lived with it the 42 years previous in my life. And as God began to open the doors of my heart that way and change my life, it culminated in a, just a different way of living. We weren't so institutionally dependent. I was really disillusioned that organized religion has the capacity to make God real to us. Man, I joke sometimes saying institutional Christianity is a human religion loosely based on the teachings of Jesus. Because Jesus didn't tell his guys to go to church every Sunday. He didn't put things in play that made us laborers for an institution, he invited us to know his Father. And if you live in the love of the Father, he'll change you. And as he changes you, you live differently in the world. And you can have fellowship and growth and teaching and transformation without having to sit to a service every Sunday. And particularly the political infighting that often goes on behind that. People want power. People are going to lie about other people, backstabbing, competing, who's more spiritual, who's less spiritual. I mean, all those games... We didn't know that day when God said, I have more to teach you if you walk away than if you stay, how much we would learn. I mean, Sarah and I, in the 25 years since, have learned so much and learned to live so differently in the world. I remember when I asked you that day if you had a green card, because I, I didn't think you would have one. Okay. <laughs> and I, I, I knew I couldn't hire you if you didn't. I, hmm. I couldn't. Because I, I was committed to, to the law and order thing. And I'm still, I'm still pretty much, I mean, if you're not a nation of laws, what are you? If you can't follow the laws of the land, then it's just chaos. So I, I still right. believe in 
order. I still believe in the rule of law. So when you had a green card, I thought, great, this is perfect, man, because you guys were great. The, the price was reasonable. We can work with this. And that's where a friendship began that I had no idea where it would end. I mean, it just because Sarah and I are, when people are in our home, we don't, we've never treated someone as just a worker here. You know, we, we want to get to know them. We care about them. If you're going through a difficult time, we like knowing about it. If we can help, we like to help. And we began to connect at that level, talked about some things from the shack. You read He Loves Me. I think I gave you a copy of He Loves Me. And right. You read it. So we got to talk about some of that. But we were still on two pretty different tracks spiritually. I mean, we looked at the amount of meetings you went to and prayer meetings, and I'm, oh my gosh, I don't know how these people are doing it. They're wearing themselves out. And you're looking at us at times thinking, I don't know who these people are. I don't know what they're doing because they never seem to go to church or they never. And yet we have lots of people in our lives. We have lots of relationships. We talk about Jesus everywhere we go. Now, I want to just say this too, okay? Because most, most of the people I know and the perception they have towards, I want to say Caucasian. It's uh, different. They say you cannot befriend them. You cannot be friends with them because we're not the same. They don't like us. And I didn't really came with that mentality. Not at all. But because I, I wasn't really like that because I met many Americans and they were great to me. But then about three or four years into our friendship growing and us becoming good friends, you came over one day when you were working here and you said, listen, I don't think my green card's valid. Do you remember that? I remember that. Now, you said you were apprehensive when you when you showed me the green card. Were you suspicious at the time that it might not be good? Not at the time, no. Okay. That's what I thought. I found out when I tried to renew it. It was actually my face, my picture, into somebody else's name. So when somebody stole my identity like that, I, uh, I thought the world, you know, crumbled. So where did you get this green card? Well, everything started when I, back on uh, 1998, when I applied for, through when I was working at the car uh, dealership. They supported me and they said they will sponsor me. So they hired this attorney. Well, when I say they hired, I was paying for it, but they found it. And then I pay, I remember I paid $18,000. And uh, to me, that was my entire life savings. Oh my gosh. So the first three or four months, it was okay. You know, meetings and, and everything they got, all oh, we got all this up, uh, everything up and running and everything looked legit. So after the six or seven months, they start, they stopped answering the phone calls and, and then I went to, to my boss and asked him, hey, where you find this guy? So they tried to find, they tried to find him. They couldn't. I drove all the way down to, to the office and the office was, was locked. When, when I, I was peeking through the, the door, trying, trying to see if I can see anything inside. And, and, and one of the employees that worked there, he was in maintenance. He says, he was questioning me. He says, what are you doing there? I said, oh, no, no. I said, I, my attorney is here and explaining that. And he says, what are you talking about? It's been it's been empty for the last two months. I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Yeah, he actually had a key, a master key. He opened it, and my heart sank that day." I said, "I was like, oh no, we've been robbed." Wasn't he arrested later? Well, what I okay, what happened was that I got a phone call from one of the uh, people who worked for them, and they said that if we give him an extra five thousand dollars, they will get us the green card. Which I was I was of course very apprehensive about it. We we make we made a contact list between everybody who was robbed because by the by there when I got there there were seven or eight more people so we so we we exchange information so we can stay in touch and see uh, if we can get this guy. One of the guys contacted me and says, "Hey, it's true, you can get one, right?" And uh, and then everybody else start trying it and I didn't have five thousand dollars. Said, "Okay, is this legal?" They go like, "Yeah, it is legal." 
So, and I was like, I checked with my boss and the boss says, yeah, if you can get it, that's fine. I don't care. So I was like, yeah, but it's illegal. I, I don't want to do anything illegal. So I went back to them and, and then I, I said, well, everybody looked, everything looked legit. Then again, I'm not an attorney, so should have checked with one, but I gathered the money somehow. I, I sold, I remember I sold my car and I, I started, it wasn't that far from work. So I, st- I walked for, for the next two years. So I sold the car and then other stuff I had, and, and I asked for uh, borrow money, and then I came up with the 5000 Okay, I'm confused. It was 18000 initially. Where's the 5000 coming? E- 5000 extra. Oh, 5000 more. This is while he's still in business? I mean, it's while the office was still open, this part? No, it was somebody connected oh. to, that, to this person that moved into another office. So by then, you knew the green card you had was illegal, but they would say if you gave them $5,000 more, they could get you a, a legitimate one. Is that what you thought? Yes, to change everything. So when they called the name, nobody was answering because they were calling for a different name. And then, and then the guy who took me there, he says, that's you, that's you. And I'm like, no, that's not me. So I walk into the window and there's, there's, uh, I'm in front of the INS officer right there. And what am I to do right there? If I said, no, that's not my name. But then she said, that's your picture right there. And then they run the fingerprints. They said, that's your fingerprint right there. I had a lot to explain and I have no answers for any of their questions because I didn't know all I know that I paid $5,000 for them to fix that. And what they did, they, they, they took my identity and they sold my identity to somebody else. And then based on, because I, I did have a case where I could get a green card, but they sold that to somebody else before they left. They've made extra money doing that. So I, I'm right there in front of the, in front of the INS officer. And what, what do I do? So I signed my name and, and the officer looked at me and said, what are you doing? Why did you put that name? That, that's not your name. Why did you put it? And I was like, what? That makes me think, I don't know. I'm not saying the officer was with them, but yeah, I don't know. That's very suspicious that she just says, put that name in there. I was really scared. I was just about to just to walk away from there. You can't. I felt really forced to just put that name in there. And I put it there when... After all of that was done and I walked out of that building, the guy was walking behind me and I don't know, I shouldn't done it. I, I know I shouldn't done it. I remember that I, I demanded, you know, an explanation when I couldn't get it. I remember that I, I, I didn't punch him on the face, by the way. That's good. I'm wondering what you were doing to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to say, but, but anyways, I, I got very, I got very upset because uh, he put me in a really horrible position. And then you came and told me one day, was that hard? Very. What were you, you afraid um, we would let you go? I thought I was going to get fired. And I was really hurt, not because I was going to lose business, but because I was going to lose your friendship. To me, that was much more important than anything else. And then I was really blown away by your response. Fortunately, this wasn't enough to derail our friendship, but it did challenge it. Lewis is forced to return to the shadows. And while other people continue to exploit his vulnerability, he continues to risk himself to help others, including an FBI agent and a scary encounter with the police. Next time on My Friend Lewis. So I got out of the car and with the wallet out up on the air and my two hands up, and then I started calling for the first officer. And then I said, listen, this man, he is who he says he is. He is an FBI agent. 
And then when I said, and I have his wallet, oh man. They said, who are, who, who are you? And then they said, no, 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 no. Get on the ground. I got on the ground, put my hands behind my back and I waited for them. They came in, they put me in handcuffs. People keep looking at you. And I was like, oh man, this is really embarrassing. My Friend Lewis is a production of Blue Sheep Media in association with Lifestream.org. Copyright 2021 by Wayne Jacobson. All rights reserved. Produced by Ken Joy for Ken Joy Media.